Palomar Observatory. From 1948 until recently, it was the largest telescope in the world. The idea and design came from a brilliant and wealthy astronomer named George Ellery Hale. Actually, the idea was presented to Hale one night while he was playing billiards. An elf climbed in his window and told him to get money from the Rockefeller Foundation for a telescope. And you're worried that all your life you've been seeing elves? In my case, little green man. to Discovering the X-Files, the podcast in which a newbie takes a deep dive into the entirety of Chris Carter's creepy universe, while longtime fans escort me on the journey. It's a perilous journey filled with shady government conspiracies or weird monsters every other week. I'm Eric Antoine, and I am now embarking on the second season of this series, as Daniel and I will be discussing Little Green Men, which originally aired in the U.S., on September 16, 1994. It was written by Glenn Morgan and James Wong and directed by David Nutter. In this episode, we are still dealing with the fallout of the X-Files having been shut down. Mulder, currently assigned to shit details involving the surveillance of mobsters, has been questioning his faith. Until he receives a hot tip from a friend in the government and goes to the Arecibo Observatory in Puerto Rico to continue his search for proof on extraterrestrial life. Eventually, Scully, who is working in a different department, goes along for the ride. It's a grand start to the second season, featuring the welcome return of Mitch Pileggi as Walter Skinner, and the not-so-welcome return of William B. Davis as Smoking Man. It also features the wonderful character actor Raymond J. Barry as Mulder's erstwhile government contact. There's a lot going on here, and after the break, Daniel and I are going to get into it. Stick around. The X-Files have been terminated, Mulder. We have been reassigned. So what do you want? To know that you're all right. They've got me on electronic surveillance. White bread cases, bank fraud, insurance fraud, health care swindles. Mulder, I know that you feel frustrated that without the Bureau's resources, it's impossible for you to continue. Well, what then? When the Bureau first shut us down, you said that you would go on for as long as the truth was out there. You've seen so much. That's just the point. Seeing is not enough. I should have something to hold on to, some solid evidence. I learned that from you. Your sister's abduction, you've held on to that. I'm beginning to wonder if, if that ever even happened. Mulder, even if George Hale only saw elves in his mind, the telescope still got built. Don't give up. Hey, so how you doing? Uh, Not too bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Pretty good, uh, pretty good. Yeah, it's a, it's a good day. It's a, it's a nice... Yes. Uh, you know, I, I can't help it. I'm, I'm happier than a pig in shit right now. <laughs> um, like I, I don't really care if this dates the the podcast. It's fine. Uh, I mean, and by the time by the time it drops, it'll be you know two months from now, you know, a couple of months from now at least. So, but I don't care. I don't care. I mean, we are recording this on the afternoon of Saturday, November seventh, twenty twenty. 
and a couple a couple hours ago we all we all got some some very good news. But anyway, I'll leave it at that because uh, you know I maybe maybe it's not great news for all my listeners, and you know I'll, we'll, we'll just we'll just leave it there. But I am in a good mood right now, and it's all it's all very good. And I'm also in a good mood because uh, here we are starting on the second season, and it is of course a um, a very good episode. It starts very well, like right off the bat. Because I would have a question. You as a fan might know this. Uh, it's noticeably more polished. Like, I mean, just kind of off the bat, there's just something about, you know, we, we commented throughout the first season on how it holds up. It looks great. Uh, it has a kind of a cinematic uh, flourish to it, et cetera. And that, that was true then and it's still true now. But there is this noticeable uptick in the visual quality of the show. I don't know if it's just a matter of them. Ha- I'm, I mean, I'm sure they had more money already, but um, maybe just having a, a more dedicated crew and just really knowing how to tackle everything this time around. It's a more fine-tuned machine, I guess, is the way to put it. I would imagine that they were given a a bigger budget. You know, along with the season renewal, they were told, like, here you go, we're going to give you some more money as well. Uh, so go ahead and... You know, make sure it's up there on the screen. And, and, I, and I think that it definitely shows. Very much so, yeah. Um, <laughs> Especially later in the episode. Yes, yes, absolutely. And, uh, just, like, there's, there's, there's a bunch of interesting production value stuff. But also, like, that, it just opens, you know, on, like, a star field. You know, and you, you have that narration, which uh, was going to originally be... I think they intended that to be the character of uh, Senator Richard Matheson. <laughs> they wanted him. They, they wanted him to be the one that uh, did that narration because they originally had contacted uh, Darren McGavin for that role. Uh, as you know, Darren McGavin was, of course, Kolchak, the Night Stalker, who is, in a sense, the uh, I suppose the spiritual forefather of the X Files, and so they, they thought it would be an, an interesting. Um, way to sort of start the second season. They couldn't get Darren McGavin for whatever reason, scheduling conflicts, I guess, or whatever. Uh, so they just had Mulder do it, which I think, honestly, it's more appropriate. I mean, it's a familiar voice. You know, if you're if you're coming to see the show, you know, it's it's been off the break. Here you are. It's the, it's the season premiere. You're sitting down to watch it. And I think it would have been weird to just have some random voice that at that point you wouldn't even know who it was giving this narration. Whereas if it's Mulder, that sort of... Oh, okay. Here we are. It's Mulder. You know, he's he's going through this narration, and clearly, this is going to figure into the plot a real historical event, which is, of course, the launching of the Voyager probe, um, with its golden vinyl disc. <laughs> <laughs> that uh, it was a it's it's a vinyl disc, right? Or it's some kind of a something to that effect. I don't quite remember the specifics of it, but um, but in any case, that's the uh, that that's how it starts. And it's interesting because in this episode, as we start, uh, Mulder is having a crisis of faith of sorts. Yep. What, what for him would amount to a crisis of faith. And the arc of the episode is, of course, Mulder rekindling his interest and uh, deciding to not give up the fight. And a couple of things about that. I think that by doing that, it functions as a sequel to the Erlenmeyer flask. But it also, the episode to me felt a bit like a restart. A little bit, you know? yeah. yeah. Like, 
I mean, I, I'm not going to go as far as to call it a soft reboot or anything like that, only because no. it's obviously, obviously, it's it's picking up all the story threads that we've already seen. But it kind of serves to, you know, it, by putting Mulder in this position and giving him this arc where, okay, by the end of the episode, here we are, we're back in business. It gives it that arc. It gives the episode an arc. And it also serves to, in a way, let's say you're a new viewer. Let's say you've heard about X-Files. Maybe you've watched an episode or two, but you haven't really been following the show. Or maybe you haven't watched it at all, and then like all your friends are raving about it throughout the first season. Here comes the second season, and you figure, well, let me check this out. I mean, you know, people are talking about it. Maybe it's a good show. And I think it's an episode that you could watch, and sure, you might need a friend to fill in some details, but you basically you go like, oh, okay, I get, I get what this is. I get what this is about. I can watch this, you know. And so I think that it has that. I think that's very deliberate, obviously, because I would imagine yeah. that. Uh, I have a feeling that the ratings sort of were on the uptick throughout the first season and it sort of picked up momentum. So them coming back for the second season was a kind of event. I'm, I'm think I'm assuming that. Uh, I think you're right. And it very much does function as a really nice entry point to anyone who either hadn't seen the show up until that point, or like you said, maybe caught a couple episodes, but didn't really dive in on everything. It's, it's a good way to kick things off if you're finally just now tuning in and wanting to get into the series uh, in a way that, you know, we won't really have as we get deeper on into the show. I'm going to assume that was going to be my next question. We don't get too much more of this, right? I mean, I think from this point on, it's like, okay, you're in. Like, you're in or you're out. Like, from this point on, the mythology episodes are going to be this huge uh, impenetrable maze. It's just, this is, this is the moment where we're, we're, we're hooking viewers, and from this point on, you're hooked or you're not. So I don't think we're going to get too many more restart points, but maybe, I mean, I could be wrong about that. I'm not expecting every season premiere to be like this, is what I'm saying. Because as I understand it, this, this season is pretty mythology heavy. I mean, it's not, you know, it's got quite, quite a bunch of mythology episodes. Yeah, it, it really kicks things into high gear as we get further into it. And as for your overall question there, you're right, this is pretty much the last, here's a nice entry point for you, at least for a while, because everything's going to build throughout this season. As we discussed previously, the season finale of season two segues into the first two episodes of season three as one giant three-parter. So there's no, there's no real starting point there. And then once you get into four and five, you're it's just building on everything and then it marches to the point where five leads into the movie the first movie and then season six just picks up right after the movie so we're really not going to get some sort of hey if you haven't watched this show this is a great place to start probably until seven or eight season seven or eight and then it it comes down a little bit to where you could have a moment like that again Okay. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I see what you're saying. And you know what, it makes sense. Because as I, as I said, at the top of this, and the part of the, the whole point, like, I'm not, I've never been a long time X-Files fan. And part of it was because it just seemed so intimidating. Yeah. You know, uh, it, it basically was because at the time, you know, I'm, I had never been a regular viewer of it. Anytime I sat down to watch it, if I caught like a Monster of the Week episode, I, yeah, I had fun with what I saw. But then if I if I happened to catch one of the mythology episodes, I was like, what in the, <laughs> like, what the f fuck it's like yeah this is i can't i can't i, I can't do this so, i mean i'd have to go back to the beginning and back then it just wasn't easy but you could just go and like get dvds you just couldn't do it right back then it was just yeah. if a friend of yours had taped it i mean i don't even know i know that they put them out on vhs for a time you know like 
around, you know, in the, in the mid '90s. But I don't even think those were complete seasons. I think it was just a bunch yeah. of just random episodes. That, Pretty much. Yeah. So it was. There's just no real way to do it. So you know, by I tried watching the movie, and I was like, that movie needed <laughs> an instru like that movie needed an instruction manual. Like I, I had no idea what I was doing there. Uh, so yeah, uh, I guess this just isn't. It's not for me. I'm not. I can't do this. I'll have maybe one day I'll watch it, but this is not the time. So you know, now it is the time, and I do. I do feel that, and uh, yeah, I think that this episode, it truly is a a good launching point. Uh, there is one interesting detail. Uh, you know, Mulder, Mulder's having a crisis of faith at the start of this, and interestingly enough, and this is something that I don't know, I mean, again, I, I just think this is an interesting detail. I think that Scully, it's interesting that Scully uh, is the one who's supporting uh, him carrying on, you know? It's a real reversal of what her function was at the beginning of the series, way back in season one, that she was supposed to come in to debunk him. She was basically supposed to come in to sort of actually cause him to abandon all that quote-unquote nonsense. But here she is saying, don't give up, you know, that this is, this is a very important thing for you, and I'm here because I know this is important to you, and I'm here to support you. And I think that's very that's very powerful. I think that gives a very clear indication of who Scully is at that point and who she is in relation to Mulder. Yeah, very much so. And he, you could even come at it from the angle where maybe she doesn't fully believe everything, but at the end of the day, she's really just worried about her friend. She wants him to be his old self again. She wants him to be excited about his job again and should just not give up, I guess... A good way of looking at it is if Mulder gives up on the X-Files and the search for his sister or what happened to his sister, in a sense, he's really just giving up on himself and his life in general, and she just doesn't want to see him do that. Right. Yes, exactly. I, I get that, too. I get that. Yeah, she's still a skeptic. You know, as we said, maybe she's a little bit more open-minded about the whole alien thing. Mm -hmm. You know, she, she might be more open-minded about the possibility of that, given her experiences in the previous episode. But in general, she's still kind of, yeah, you know, like, I'm still not sure how much of this I'm ready to, to entirely believe. But she knows it's important to Mulder and she cares about him. And so she's like, you know what? I don't want to see you destroy yourself like this. I, I, I know that this is basically the driving force of your existence. And to see you give up on it like that, it, it's, you know, it's breaking my heart. So I need, I need to help you get back on track here right and so that's really cool about the the abduction here we see we see it vividly portrayed i think this is the first time that we actually see it that we actually see a flash a flashback yeah. to when uh, samantha was abducted i don't recall us actually seeing it he talked about it more than once but yeah we had not we have not actually seen it and so here it was uh, this happened in the mid 70s um Mulder is uh you know, watching the uh, Watergate uh, <laughs> investigations on, on TV, uh, and it's it's funny. There, there there's a couple a couple of details that were cool. They're playing Stratego, which is a, a board game that I recall from my childhood, and I have not played in years. And I used to love that game. I, I used to play that after school all the time. Like you know, at any of it was always one of the board games that was at any of the after-school centers that I went to as a kid, right? And is, is that game even still around? Can you still go and, like, buy a copy of Stratego? Do they, 
I'm sure you can, as long as, you know, you find a store with a decent-sized game section. Like, maybe Target probably still carries it. I don't know about Walmart. But uh, I, I've played Stratego, but it's been so long that I uh, there's I would have to read the instructions. There's no way I would remember how to play it on its own. Yeah, exactly. I, I think uh, I also would have to read the instructions again, because I don't recall the... I think it was Checkers to Risks Chess. And uh, that's all. And maybe I'm wrong about that. Somebody who's listening who like is more familiar with it might be like, no, you're, it's nothing like Risk. It's what are you talking about? But uh, that's what I remember of it. And I still, I mean, I still play Risk from time to time. Risk is a game I'm more familiar with now. But yeah, Stratego, I have not played since then. But this episode made me want to go back and was like, yeah, I'd love to find a copy of that and, and play that. But it's a really good scene. It's a really well, it's, it's a nicely structured scene. You see... You see Mulder as like a dickish teenager, you know, like just being a dick. And and I like how it's really funny how he's why he's so into like he's watching the Nixon thing. Like that's what he's watching. Like he's he's not watching the magician. Like he doesn't give a shit about that. No. He just says that. He just says that because he doesn't want to seem like a big geek uh, to to his sister. He's like, why the fuck are you watching this the news? <laughs> like that is what he's interested in, because when she goes to change the channel, he's like, Hey, what are you doing? And you know, like that's a very sweet, um, like, I love that scene. It's really, it's obviously it has that whole, like, uh, 80s kid movie vibe, you know, that Spielberg yeah. vibe. But clearly, that was a very, they, they went, they were going for that vibe, and they, they achieved it. And I think based on what we see, the way we see it play out, it, it kind of contradicts uh, a little the bit, way. Yeah. It's not entirely the way that Mulder described it to in his, in his tapes, right? Because in his tapes, he I don't remember if, if in the tapes he describes. It. I know that there's a, there's one point in which he describes the abduction. You know, he says exactly mm-hmm. what happened. And I know that based on that, what I recall, it wasn't like this. You know, it's not oh, you know, we were playing a board game and then the power went out. And I mean, it, it wasn't like that. It was. No. I'm pretty sure he said that they were in their uh, assumed shared bedroom. Mm-hmm. And he remembered being able to look over at her and see her floating out of the room, but not being able to move. But then mm-hmm. again, I guess you could always chalk that up to one of these two memories might be shaky or influenced by just fever dream stuff in general, or maybe they both are. One of maybe one of them is more true than the other. Um, but in I guess in the end, it really doesn't matter as long as his, you know, his feeling of. Uh, inadequacy as far as protecting his sister is really the the main point there i do like how the uh the kid playing Mulder adopts a couple of uh duchovny's mannerisms for the scene uh clearly i mean i don't know if that kid um yeah i mean obviously he must have observed the company yeah. you know like he, he he did his job as an actor that, that did a good job of like imitating the company and yeah i think you're right i mean i, I think i'm going to chalk that up too because what we see in this in this episode is a quote-unquote flashback, but really it's a dream. It's a, yeah. uh, you know, because what we, we see Mulder wake up from his bed, you know, sweating and, and as he would from a nightmare. And so maybe the way it plays out in his dream, that's how his mind evokes it for him in dream form. And it works because you could imagine that maybe it's just a combination of things from that evening, yeah. from the evening that it happened. A couple of memories. You know? Yeah, it's like, oh, we were playing and we were watching TV and then we went to bed and then this happened. Right? That's how it actually happened. But, of course, in his dream, it's all kind of just smashed together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you're right. There's some cool things here. Uh, again, I, I, like, I like the way Scully 
is really putting it out there for for Mulder. You know, she gets involved because when this starts, you have it is a strange scene. You're not you're not sure what's going on exactly, but you get the sense that they've. I mean, they have been separated. Of course, they're no longer in the same department in any sense, and they're in different departments. And the part that I wasn't too clear on, and, I, and obviously they do this to sort of, you know, hoodwink you, is that when she runs into him in the hallway at the beginning, like she acts, uh, you know, calls him Agent Mulder, not Mulder. And, you know, he basically just ignores her and walks past her. And I'm, I was trying to figure out if, is she doing that on purpose? Is shortly after this, it is established that they have a code. You know, well, she'll put a post-it, she'll, she'll put a post-it on the, on the picture. You know, she'll overturn the picture. That's that's like code for a hey, let's meet. We we have to talk. So I'm guessing that what they're they're putting on an act for for anybody who might be watching or the impression I get because I think at one point she makes reference to the fact that it's been like six months or something since right. everything was shut down. The impression I get from her overall demeanor and tone is that she thinks it's time to drop the act and they can just be friends in public again. And she walks up to him to do her little cutesy, say hi in the hallway, and he just blows her off and keeps on walking down. (laughs) So she, in turn, puts the post-it note on his desk and, you know, initiates a meeting because, what the fuck, dude? Why didn't you say hi to me in the hallway? (laughs) I mean, because what we see is, yes, of course, they're both, certainly he is, he is under surveillance. While doing surveillance. While doing surveillance. Actually, that's the thing. Um... Uh, at the end of the episode, you know, we, we it, it's notable that this episode also features the return not only of Smoking Man, which whom we've already seen, but more importantly of uh, of uh, Walter Skinner. Yes, it's. I think it's interesting that the note that it ends on. I mean, Skinner is obviously Mulder's boss, mm-hmm. and and he was already. I mean, I guess the the implication was even though we hadn't seen him again since that one episode, he was he still continued to be his boss. Even I mean, basically he was the one. Or at least he informed him that the X-Files had been shut down, you know, but he continued to be his boss. So all he did was just reassign him, but he's still his superior. He's like, all right, now you're going to go work on such and such case. Like these, what are they, like embezzlers or gangsters? or like <laughs> He's like just sort of, and he's, he's basically reassigned him to like a shit detail where he just has to like eavesdrop on drug dealers or something. Something stupid, you know, that is, is as far as Mulder's concerned, completely beneath him and ridiculous. Because, you know, I was going like, you know, I could have arrested them two days in. Yeah. I mean, I had enough. So what are they doing? Are they just basically trying to keep him occupied? Yes. So they, they, give, they give him these shit details and basically cases that are just useless but pointless cases where they're just like, yeah, 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 just sit in on these guys and, you know, we'll let you know when it's time to, like, pick them up. And sit in there, sit on, sit in on them for a year, right? Oh, yeah. And so they, they are just basically saying, do this. We, we don't want to have to deal with you. We're not going to fire you. But uh, we don't want to have to deal with you. So just go and sit in that room every day for the next year. And, you know, just clearly a deliberate thing. It's interesting to where, of course, they've been they've been split up. The X-Files has been shut down. They've been reassigned. Scully is just reassigned to teach students for the most part, which is a job that she probably would have enjoyed anyway. So right. obviously she misses it. She misses working with Mulder. But professionally, she's probably fine. She probably likes her job day in and day out as she goes in and works. And then Mulder gets the, sh- the shit, listen to all these tape recordings <laughs> in the corner detail, clearly as not only busy work, but punishment for, you know, 
whatever perceived embarrassments that he's caused the FBI after being their shining star profiler and then going and chasing after UFOs in the desert all the time. Right. But the interesting dynamic from all of that comes from that final scene with Skinner in which, on the one hand, you can tell that it supremely irks him that Mulder is frequently insubordinate. He can't stand it. So on the one hand, he wants to keep the punishment going for that. But on the other hand, he also gets really pissed off when the cigarette smoking man starts being a dick in the middle of the meeting and kicks him out of his office. Yeah, that's actually a great scene. That's a, that's a great beat because he's all like, he's like, get the hell out of here. And the, the look on his face, oh, oh, you mean me? Jesus. <laughs> but that, like, I think that that serves two things. First of all, I think it establishes Skinner. That serves to establish Skinner, I guess. We're, we're getting now that, yeah, okay, he's the authority figure. He's going to be butting heads with Mulder. So he's basically the angry chief. Yeah. Right? If, if this were a cop show, Skinner would be the angry chief. Okay, fine. That's what he is. That's okay. He's going to butt heads with Mulder, but he's still sort of like, okay, I'm going to butt heads with you. I'm going to call you on your shit. But I also, like, I get it that you're trying to do something good here. And I think that I'm going to let you do your thing. But, every, but you know, I'm still going to be a dick to you, and I'm still going to tell you to go sit in that corner for another few months or whatever. But maybe... Like, it's sort of like this unspoken thing where he tells him, okay, because uh, he goes, like, I think we need a little more to go on, right? He says to him. And it's sort of like the implication for me was, yeah, okay, just do your thing. But when I ask you to do something, you better fucking do it. Like, that, like that's all that basically that says to me. It, it's also a bit of a parental thing. You know, we're both parents. It's sort of the, I'm standing here lecturing my kid on the fact that they haven't behaved. Someone else steps in and say something, and then you just turn and say, don't talk to my fucking kid. Yes, that's exactly, that is exactly what it is. Yes, that's exactly <laughs> what it is. It's like, yeah, no one gets to yell at my kid but me. All right, yep. that's just, but yeah, I, it, it was great to, uh, to see uh, Skinner again. And it was great to see in a, in, in a very brief, but I think very, very good, very cool scene, uh, one of my favorite character actors, Raymond J. Barry, yes. in the role of Senator Richard Matheson. Mm -hmm. uh, Richard Matheson, <laughs> for the unaware, Richard Matheson is, of course, the late Richard Matheson, a great writer who wrote many episodes of The Twilight Zone and wonderful short stories, including Last Man on Earth, which was the basis for The Omega Man and and uh, I Am Legend. Well, it's the other way around. Right? I think, I think the, the story is called I Am Legend. Yes. Uh, Richard Matheson wrote the story, the short story I Am Legend, which, which was the basis for the Vincent Price film Last Man on Earth, which was also uh, remade as The Omega Man and then eventually I Am Legend with Will Smith. Richard Matheson, one of the great writers, and they named this senator after him, obviously in tribute to uh, the Twilight Zone and to who he was. Uh, but Raymond J. Barry's great. It took me a minute to really understand what this was all about. It, it's like they hired Mulder. That's how I understood it. Like, uh, like Mulder's just like, you know, chilling in his apartment and this guy shows up. It's like, we have to go or whatever. It's like, what? The implication was that uh, Senator Matheson wants him to go check this out. It's, it's implied that they've known each other for a little while and that he's been quietly supporting Mulder and maybe shielding yeah. him any way he could, which yeah. again references back to a moment at least once in season one, and I can't remember who exactly says it to Mulder. It was one of the more cantankerous FBI people about uh, not, even one, not even your friend on Capitol Hill can save you this time. 
which yeah. now we have the, now we know who the Capitol Hill friend is. But it's right. it's clearly someone who is just very quietly helping from the outside, and then finally steps forward with a direct "you need to go look at this before time runs out" sort of mission. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that there, there's an element to that too, where you sort of have to take it on faith. I mean, they put it in there just so that no one will accuse it of being a plot hole. But it's sort of this thing where you go like, I mean, come on, he's a, he's a senator and he's like, he's always watched his back, but he couldn't stop the X-Files from being shut down. You know, yeah. and, and he, he makes a point of, yeah, unfortunately, I, I could do absolutely everything for you except prevent the X-Files from being shut down and except prevent uh, Deep Throat from getting assassinated. There, there are a few things that are a little bit outside of my uh, pay grade, but uh, I've always tried to help you, Mulder. And so I need you to check this out for me, I think. Uh, or at least, I don't, I, that's the thing. I don't know if he, he's doing, he's asking Mulder to do him a favor or he's actually doing Mulder a favor. I think it's a bit like, of both. Yeah, where he's going like, like, you know, there's this thing in Puerto Rico that, that you're going to want to check out. Like, you should go see this. And so that's, yeah, that, that's a really cool scene. You know, it's a, it's a nice, it's it's a, it's a nice spy movie scene. You know, the whole thing with the music and and then he writes the paper and it's like they're listening and like that whole like, I love like cloak and dagger bullshit like that. Oh yeah, that is, it's always fun. <laughs> like old old fashioned cloak and dagger bullshit. And so uh, Mulder goes to Puerto Rico, and that is, I guess, the the, the centerpiece of the episode is that it's him <laughs> doing his investigation at that base at that. I guess it's a listening station. Like what? Like that's the thing. What exactly is that place? listening station slash data collection center for a satellite dish, I guess. Right, and it's unmanned, uh, at least, you know, as far as we can tell. It's very strange, but uh, you, you can kind of overlook that because it is that that's the big thing in the episode. You know, he goes there and uh, clearly that is a listening station and he meets an unfortunate man named Jorge. <laughs> uh, and, and I do want to talk about Jorge for a second because there, that is one thing that jumped out, that leaped right out at me as a Hispanic person myself that I really appreciated this. I, I thought it was great that they got an authentic Hispanic actor to play Jorge. I do not know him, but whoever he is, he's either Cuban or Puerto Rican because when he speaks Spanish and all his lines are in Spanish, it's real. It's like he's he's speaking he is speaking Spanish and he is speaking the way that's Puerto Rico or Cuba, like from the Caribbean, from that area. That's mm -hmm. what that's what it would sound like. So clearly they got an actor who's either Cuban or Puerto Rican or maybe even Dominican, but now I'm going to, I'm going to lean more towards Cuban or Puerto Rican and uh, who really, who, who that's Spanish is, if it's not his first language, he's fluent in Spanish and speaks it in that accent. So it sounds really authentic. And the reason I want to point that out is that that's so rare. Like, I don't know, like this isn't something that everybody can appreciate, but it's so rare right. to see that. It's so rare to see that. And, and it's not only is it rare, but it's, it's weird that it's rare. Like it's weird to me yeah. because there is no, there is no shortage of of um, Spanish speaking, you know, native Spanish speaking actors working in Hollywood and around Hollywood uh, to to cast from. And so even you, you have situations like even a show that I love. Okay, like uh, it's a it's a wonderful show, Breaking Bad. Okay, okay. Breaking Bad by and large. I mean, uh, Giancarlo Esposito. Uh, is a wonderful actor, and he created an amazing character in Gus Fring, and it's a... I mean, I'm not going to criticize that aspect of it, and I would not change it for the world. I love that character, and I love that actor, and that's all good. However, Giancarlo Esposito is not Hispanic, and more to the point, he his Spanish is terrible. 
and and he's he's got a lot of Spanish. He's got a lot of Spanish, and I appreciate that they're saying, okay, let's make the Spanish speaking characters speak Spanish to each other. But you you listen to that and you go like, whoa. And obviously, someone who's not uh, Hispanic won't realize that. And right. That's fine. And so they don't need to care about it. But in this particular case, with this minor character who's maybe only got a handful of lines, uh, they really went the extra mile to give it authenticity. And I really appreciated that. And why do you think that is? Like, wh why do you think they're so lazy about that aspect of it when they're casting like Spanish characters, like Hispanic characters in movies? If I had to guess, I'd say that they're assuming most of the people watching it are me. <laughs> because in that scenario, I mean, I had, you know, uh, two semesters of Spanish in high school, but good God, that was, that was almost two decades ago. I don't remember any of it. I mean, I can read a menu, but that's about it. So I, I can only assume when I'm watching a sequence like that and it's not subtitled, even when they are subtitled, that what they're saying is authentic and that it would sound authentic because I am a white dude who lives in the middle of a rural state and not, not even on a coastline. So <laughs> I, I don't hardly have a lot of experience with that. And as a result, I would assume if they're assuming most viewers are like me, then they're assuming that we're not going to know the difference if things are a little off and they just don't put the effort in, would be my guess. You're right. I mean, it's not. It's it's the sort of thing where going a little bit off topic, but uh, the, but I guess it, it's relevant in some way. Uh, I had a friend who worked on uh, was a production assistant on uh, the, the Bond movie Quantum of Solace, mm -hmm. and that film takes place. Much of the movie takes place in Bolivia, and I live in Bolivia, and I can tell you absolutely that that is that movie is complete. An utter horseshit in the way it portrays <laughs> in the way what it portrays is completely false, and that's I mean of course they didn't even shoot it in Bolivia. I think they shot it in like Panama, and I don't know where else. Uh, so that's fine, but they did have people like the like so this friend of mine uh, was on the crew as like a consultant, production assistant, whatever, and he happened to notice. He's talking to some of the people, and he happened to notice some inaccuracies. And he pointed them out. He, he you know, he, to whoever, one of the people more in charge said, you know, just, I mean, I'm Bolivian and I, I just have to point out that this is inaccurate. That's not, this isn't the way it is. And the response from the person was pretty much, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, obviously, but it was basically, who cares? Do they even have movie theaters in Bolivia? No one's going to see this. <laughs> I mean, it was like that. No one's even going to see it there. Who cares? So... To, to bring it back to this, because this goes the extra mile, mm -hmm. I think it gets a lot of points. Like I was like, uh, I was like, it's so well, it's so good to know that the people in charge were mindful of that. Because it's like, here's this sci-fi show where, you know, we're doing a bunch of gobbledygook, okay? Yeah. But we're we're trying to make it believable and grounded and truthful, and. Mm -hmm going the extra mile to make sure that, yeah, that Puerto Rican janitor is going to, if you're Puerto Rican and you watch that show, you're going to say, yeah, that's a Puerto Rican janitor. I mean, that is, to me, great. Uh, like I, I, just, I went nuts with that. I was like, wow, that's 
I can't believe that because this could have easily just been some oh, yeah. guy they got from central casting and gave him a couple of lines and taught them to him phonetically and like that's it. But no, like they went the extra mile. So so it's it's very uh, I think it's very important. Yeah. That that makes me feel really good. Not only for you, but and the episode in general, but the fact that as this series goes on, we're going to get more and more different types of cultures mixed in with things for various reasons, whether mm -hmm. it's part of a mythology thing or if it's a very culturally specific Monster of the Week episode. So, you know, again, I'm not always going to be aware of whether or not what's being shown is accurate or not. So the fact that you're telling me that at least in this particular instance it was, that makes me feel even better about some of the things that we're eventually going to get to one down the line here. Makes me think that right. maybe they went the extra mile at least most of the time. Yeah, well, that's exactly what I was going to say because you know, we had in season one, we had shapes, which uh, is very connected to the Native American community mm -hmm. and even has some Native American elements, which in behind the scenes details, they got like some real Native American people to work in there and do stuff. And, and so, and well, I don't know anything about that culture. So I have to take it on faith that what they're showing me is authentic. And then, so of course, I watch this episode and yeah that puerto rican janitor that's authentic so now that gives me extra confidence that well, probably the native american thing was pretty authentic and probably like in the future if i see something that has to do with russians or whatever i'll be like yeah they probably went the extra mile there too they probably got real russian actors and then and, and, or you know got consultants and whatever else to make that as authentic as possible and so yeah that that gives me uh, a lot of confidence in the show yeah. uh that that they're that they are working hard to make it feel authentic they're aware that this is pulp they're aware that this is an entertainment it's science fiction it's you know it, it is escapism and it's fantasy but they want to give it a, as much of a reality as they can so that you can really believe it and really buy into it and i think that that's great and and the last thing that i want to talk about uh, that i want to mention uh, before i forget is that this features the stupidest spies that I've ever seen in, in, in a work of fiction. Now, the, well, I mean, okay, you got the ones that like break into the house. That's the, the like when she goes to feed, when she goes to like check in on, on Mulder's computer, that, that is kind of funny also that the, the password. Trust like, no one. Yeah, it's like, Mulder, you, you, gotta, you gotta come up with a better password, my friend, because that's anybody who knows you for, for, for two hours is gonna be able to figure out your password. But uh, that, okay, so they're, they're, they're a bunch of dum-dums, you know, like where she basically takes that, you know, the, that paper, what is this? You know, like, oh, it's just some computer test and let's crumple it up and just dump it in the trash. <laughs> and then she's all like, oh, silly me, I dumped the fish food. And, and they're, they're like standing right in front of her and they don't, they don't see her pull that very amateurish move. But like, that's, that's one thing, maybe they're just, okay, they're, they're a bunch of dum-dums. The ones at the airport, <laughs> the ones at airport, right? It's Miami airport. It wasn't shot there, but that's what it, oh, whatever. But like, uh, she's going to take, what was it like Southwest airlines or some, something, something that doesn't exist. But so she's at the airport and there's these, there's this, these very, very obvious, you know, I guess they, they thought, well, we'll blend right in. We look like a, you know, like a couple about to go on vacation with their, with our loud shirts and like our, yeah, that's not going to work. And like, you're, you're both sitting, you're sitting together and you're like, like sitting at that bench right there. I thought that was really funny, like how they were so clearly obvious. And uh, so I just like that, that was a very funny scene. Yeah. So it's, it's basically, yes, uh, the, the season is off to a fantastic start. It's a gripping episode. 
uh, with uh, some very cool details. The the entire sequence at night when things go, you know, go apeshit and and Mulder's is stuck there, and then the alien shows up. You know, the yeah. alien finally shows up, and and they show. You know, this is the the first time that we really see one. You know. And and I again I like how they handle that. They handle it with the same minimalism that has characterized the series. You know, it's not quite visible. It's not quite. You know, it's there's this thing kind of in the light, and you can make out the the, the shape of it, and you can see it and clearly what it is. But they they still keep it slightly ambiguous, and I and I appreciated that, and I thought that was really well handled. One more thing, since it's been a recurring discussion for us, Scully goes into his apartment. She's fiddling around with the easiest passwords and password ideas in the world to try and get into his file system. And she plays his answering machine. And there's a woman on it that basically says, Mulder, we had a date and you didn't show up, you pig. And then hangs up the phone. And Scully just kind of rolls her eyes and goes back about what she's doing. And that just got <laughs> a really big laugh out of me. Yeah, actually, yeah, that was very funny. Because we do, we do occasionally discuss uh, Mulder's non-existent sex life. Yeah, and uh, and what we see here is that well, it's not for lack of trying. I mean, no. <laughs> the guy just uh, his head's elsewhere. You know, what, yes. what are you gonna do? It should be right here. The entire tape is blank. You know, an electrical surge in the outlet during the storm may have degaussed everything, erasing the entire tape. You still have nothing. I may not have the X-Files, Scully, but I still have my work. I still have you. I still have myself. And that's that. I hope you enjoyed the discussion. And if you did enjoy it, there are many ways you can support the podcast, which is available on Anchor FM, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and other platforms. So you can subscribe, you can rate and or review it, depending on what platform you're enjoying it on. And of course, you can share and spread the word on social media. Please do any or all of these things. Look for the Eric's Antoine Network on Facebook or on YouTube. You can also follow me on Twitter at Eric's Antoine Net and check out my film reviews on Letterboxd. You should also check out Daniel Baldwin's website, theschlocketeer.com, and follow him on Twitter at Daniel W. Baldwin. I'm Eric's Antoine. I'll be back in a few days when a very special guest, the Penske Files' Clay McCormick, will be joining me. We'll be discussing the classic episode, The Host. I hope you'll join us. And until then, please remember that the truth is out there. See you next time.